Our Bible reading this morning comes from the from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to 25. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart love one another constantly. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. So last week um, we looked at the passage just before this and we looked at where Peter says we place our hope. And as we were exploring, we, we saw that, the, that, uh, that there's really this difference between the two different hopes we can have in life. On the one hand, there is a dead kind of hope, a hope that is based in all the wrong things, you know, in idols, in things that cannot help you, things that cannot save you, things that cannot give you uh, life and, and real eternal hope things that won't look after you eternally. On the other hand, there is a living hope. That is the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So when we come to faith, we, you know, when we believe in him, when we trust in him, and when we, when we put our hopes in him, that is a living hope that actually satisfies us. And not only that, we saw last week that God himself guards this hope through his power for us in heaven. And so nothing can steal it from us. We've been born again into a living hope that is imperishable, unfailing, unblemished, kept in heaven for you, guarded by God's power. So that's what we looked about last week and uh, looked at last week. And so we saw that when we put our hope in the living hope in Jesus, then we have this kind of strange staying power, a kind of grit that gets us through whatever the world will throw at us. 
So all suffering and sickness and disease and persecution and pain, all the things that come to us in this life help us actually to grow closer to God. They are things that refine us, that purify us, that shape us. And so that's what we looked at last week. And now this week, uh, Peter moves on, and, and we need to think about what the implications of this then are for us. How should we live? How should we live as a believer that now has hope? How are we to think about this world? How are we to see ourselves? How are we to act because of that? In short, what does life look like if we have a living hope? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What does life look like when we have a living hope? And as we look at this, I think it's kind of helpful to think of this in, uh, in three different kinds of ways. Peter gives us three separate sort of steps about how to live our lives as, um, as people with a living hope. And the first step is this. He says, step one, you are to think rightly about the world. Uh, now, if you've still got your Bibles there with, with you, verse 13 and 14, and then I'll skip to verse 18. Peter says there, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed anymore to the desires of your former ignorance. These are thinking words. Uh, in, in 1 verse 18, he says, uh, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. Um, and so that, that's the things that we're going to be thinking about. Because the first thing Peter would have us wrestle with here is that our normal and natural human mind is pretty confused. He describes it as a kind of drunkenness, actually. The things of this world, this empty way of life we inherited from our ancestors, uh, is intoxicating. And the thing is that when you, uh, you know, drink lots of alcohol, it clouds your judgment, doesn't it? It makes it impossible to make rational decisions. And so what Peter says here is you are to be no longer intoxicated with the things of the world. You are to be sober-minded. It has no more intoxicating power over you. You are to think clearly about the world and what it offers you. Because here's the thing. All the goodies and pleasures that the world offers us, all the joys that we are offered every day, uh, the kind of life the world wants us to live is kind of empty. And so the first thing that these believers that Peter is writing to is to, to do, to recognize, is that they are to see that reality, that what the world offers us is empty. They are to think about it clearly, to see the world clearly. And we too need to realize that our desires for worldly things is ultimately meaningless. That's why what the world offers us is empty. Uh, Peter talks about this in verse 18. He says that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that you inherited from your ancestors. He says we have, we have an inheritance that is spoiled and fading and empty and meaningless. And we have that because we are human beings. We inherited it from our ancestors all the way back through to Adam and Eve. He's saying something really profound there. All of human history, we have been trying to find fullness. Trying to find fullness in empty things. Right from the beginning, in Adam and Eve, they looked for their fulfillment outside of what God had allowed. And as their children, we have inherited this search for significance 
outside of God's purpose for us. And so just like Adam and Eve, we, you know, we plot our own path. But isn't that exactly the, the primary thing the world wants us to do today? To choose our own path, to live our best life now, to be whoever we are, whenever we are, and to pursue that with all our might. Isn't that the first thing uh, we are told when we sort of wake up in the morning as soon as you turn on the radio? Find yourself, right? Travel to the shrines of Tibet or whatever and go through the world until you discover who you are and then decide for yourself who you will be. Ignore your biology, declare what you identify with and be that. Plot your own path. But that is not enlightened. It's really just the worship of the self. It's really centering your world around yourself and who you think you should be. And Peter writes into this and he says, you are to be sober-minded. Don't live in that ignorance of the flesh. Because all that the flesh, the world and the devil want you to do is to pursue who you think you ought to be. He told Adam and Eve, you know, you can be your own God. Just, you can be exactly like God. Just eat this fruit that God told you not to eat from and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the same message he uses over and over and over. And it is the same message we hear today. Decide for yourself what is right. You tell us who you are. Only you can decide what is right and wrong. Be the master of your own universe. Which is really just another way of saying, be your own God. You are your own God. And when we buy into this, when we decide to plot our own path, we end up simply worshipping ourselves. And it doesn't work. Worshipping ourselves will not give us what we deeply crave deep inside. And so to think rightly about the world is to recognise where hope really lives. And it doesn't live in all the petty and unfulfilling things the world wants to give us. What Peter is saying is, as a believer, you actually have that living hope now. You don't belong to the world anymore. You belong to Jesus. And since you belong to Jesus, you belong to an entirely different world. You are in this world, but not of it. You are no longer of this world. And so you shouldn't listen to the message of this world anymore. We can't go on living our lives pursuing the things of this world because it just doesn't make sense. If we think rightly about the world, it does not make sense. That's why it says in verse 14, As obedient children, you are no longer to be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. We used to be ignorant, right? Outside of Christ, we are ignorant and we pursue the things of this world. But now that we have a living hope in Christ, that's not who we are. As a Christian, we have had our mind renewed. And so we've started to see clearly we're not ignorant anymore. We don't pursue the things of ignorance, the things we've always been tempted with, these things that we put our hope in precisely because we were ignorant. As a Christian, that is no longer appropriate. You and I know how empty the desires of our ignorance are, how devoid of life, how depressing chasing after those sins are. 
They give you a temporary hit of satisfaction and then leave you ever more empty, ever more devoid of life. And so (laughs) what Peter is saying here is what every husband has at one point said to his emotional wife, just be rational. You know what those sins are, those idols of the things that you used to worship. You know how empty those things are, so just be rational. Don't continue to pursue the empty things of this world. It doesn't make sense. The temptations of the world are to be seen for what they are, simply temptations to commit sin that leaves you empty. This is pretty much exactly what Paul also says in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. Think clearly about what the world offers you. There's a great illustration of this um, about the emptiness of human accomplishment in Andre Agassi's autobiography uh, in the book he wrote called Open. And he wrote this, I'm going to quote at length because this is really helpful. He He writes this, In the morning, we catch the Concorde to Paris. Obviously, this was written a while ago. Um, uh, A Concorde to Paris and then a private plane to Palermo. I'm barely settled into my hotel room when the phone rings. It is Perry. Uh, In my hand, he says, I hold the latest rankings. Hit me with it. You are number one. You've knocked Pete Sampras off the mountaintop. After 82 weeks at number one, Pete is looking up at me. I'm the 12th tennis player to be number one in the two decades since they started keeping computer rankings. The next person on the phone is a reporter. I tell him that I'm happy with my ranking, that it feels good to be uh, the best that I can be. But it's a lie. This isn't at all what I feel. It's what I want to feel. It's what I expected to feel. It's what I tell myself I feel, but in fact, I feel nothing. So I spend many hours roaming the streets of Palermo, drinking strong black coffee, wondering what the hell is wrong with me. I did it. I'm the number one tennis player on earth, and yet I feel empty. If being number one feels empty, unsatisfying, then what's the point? Why not just retire? So I picture myself announcing that I'm done I choose the uh, words I'll speak to the news conference. Several images then come to mind. Brad, Perry, my father, each disappointed, aghast. I also tell myself that that retiring won't solve my essential problem. It won't actually help me figure out what I want to do with my life. I'll be a 25-year-old retiree, which to me sounds a lot like a ninth-grade dropout. Part of my discomfort with tennis has always been a nagging sense that it is meaningless. Here it is. A promise from the world, pursue your dreams, reach the top, be the best that you can be, become rich and famous, become the best. And yet, he says, my discomfort with tennis has always been this nagging sense that it is meaningless. Friends, what the world offers us apart from Jesus is empty. So don't buy into that ignorance. Think rightly about what the world offers us. 
So that's step one. Think rightly about the world and what it offers us. Step two is think rightly then about who you are. So not only are we to think rightly about the world, we are to think rightly about who we are ourselves. And so from verse 18. For you know that you were redeemed from the empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So having shown us what it means to think rightly about the world, Peter now turns our attention to thinking rightly about who we are. Notice he says um, in the previous passage, you know, uh, sorry, in in this passage in verse 18, you know that you were redeemed from this old empty way of life that you inherited from your ancestors. Friends, this is an identity statement. He's saying that you need to think clearly about who you now are as a believer. You need to think clearly about who you are now that you have your faith in Jesus. He says, now look, Part of the reason the world is uh, in the state it is in is because actually I think we are all so confused about who we are. We don't really have a strong sense of our identity. What, what are the identities that we're given the, uh, today? What are the things that we identify with? So, you know, for some people, their identity becomes completely mixed up in what suburb they live in, you know. There is a reason we have suburb stereotypes, isn't there? We might say something like, oh, they live in Brighton. And it conjures up a very different picture from that person who lives in Doveton. And it is because there is some sense of identity bound up in what suburb you live in. But as a Christian, you are not your house, and you're not your job, and you are certainly not the amount of money that you have in your bank account. And for others, their identity becomes wrapped up in their relationships, particularly their family. You know, I'm a Pretorius, we have a family crest. Or they're part of the Kennedy family. Or if you say that person is a Trump, you know what that means. But as a Christian, you are not your family. You are not your connections. You are not the power and the influence you wield because of the family you come from. And today's, I think, in the West at least, the favourite identity issue is, of course, your sexuality. You are bi or gay or straight or non-conforming or transgender or whatever. And that sexuality is supposed to become who you are. And this is one of the most powerful tools, I think, in Satan and the world's arsenal today, where particularly he convinces same-sex attracted people that because... They are same-sex attracted. That is all they are. That is their identity. And because God has some things to say about that, they have to reject God. Otherwise, they have to reject themselves. And that feels like murder. If your whole identity is wrapped up in one particular thing and you have to give that up, it feels like dying. But as a Christian, you are not your sexuality either. Sure, God has some very specific things to say about how sexuality is to be expressed, how he designed it to work and so on, absolutely. But that's not who you are. So then as a Christian, who are we? 
Well, Peter says, we are those who have been redeemed. We are those who have been washed in the precious blood of Christ. We are those who have been washed in the spotless, unblemished Lamb's blood. As a Christian, that is who you are. Again, Paul echoes this same statement in, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11. He says there, and I'm reading from the NIV here, he says, Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, or adulterers, or male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Friends, when you trust in Jesus, when you believe in him to take away your sin, you become someone else. Your whole identity changes. You're no longer stuck in the former ignorance that we all once lived in. No, who we are is we're redeemed ones, chosen ones, saved ones. You are fundamentally different because you belong to Jesus. I find it so interesting that, um, you know, when you meet someone new, one of the first things you ask them is, so John, or whatever their name is, what is it that you do? Our identity is so much tied into what we do, isn't it? But notice, that's not what Peter is on about. He says our identity is not first and foremost about what we are uh, by what we do it's not primarily about the tasks that we complete who we are is not defined by our passions our sins our desires our past actions who we are is defined fundamentally first and foremost by jesus's blood and so when someone asks you you know who are you as a believer in jesus christ you better be answering i'm a christian i am washed by jesus's blood i've been sanctified by the precious blood of the unblemished lamb frankly that is the most important thing about you now they might think that's a little bit intense but it's who you are actually so think rightly first about what the world offers us and think rightly about who you are. Because when we do that, something will happen. And that's the third thing I think we see this morning. So when we think rightly about the world and we think rightly about who we are, then step three is we will also live rightly. Okay, so verse 15 to 17. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your, during your time living as strangers. So right after Peter makes this point about thinking rightly about who we are as believers, he says this, The one who calls you is holy, therefore you are to be holy in everything. That makes perfect sense, actually. 
when you plot Peter's argument, his logic, it makes perfect sense. You know, he's made the point that what the world offers us is empty and useless. And so all the sin that we've been participating in, all the false idols we've been worshipping, all of these things we've been pursuing to give us life, they've turned out to be empty and meaningless. And so having realised this, the Christian turns to Jesus for salvation, puts their trust in him, And then he gives them this totally new identity. And it fundamentally changes who they are. And now, since you have been fundamentally changed by Jesus' blood, since your identity has been changed, now, he says, live according to that. Just live according to who you now are. The one who called you is holy, and so now we are to be holy in response. The one who covers us and cleanses us from our sin is holy. And so we, as people who are joined into Christ, are to be holy. Be holy as God is holy. And this is kind of funny, in a sense, because what Peter is saying here is, in essentially, he's saying, so just be yourself. Just be who you are now that you've been redeemed by Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that the very same message that we, you know, started critiquing when we thought about the message the world gives us all the time? Haven't we been saying that all the world ever says is just be yourself, you know, pursue who you want to be, live your best life? That is the world's message. And now Peter is saying, just be yourself. But he's radically changed the game. Do you see how radically different his version of be yourself actually is? The world tells you, you know, you do you. But the Bible says you do holy because that's who you are. The world says, you know, you be your best self. But the Bible says you want to know what your best self is? Is be the person who God made you to be. Someone who lives this holy life, this set-apart life. Your best self is your holy self. The world says be whoever you want to be. But the Bible says you have been redeemed to be that. You were bought with a price. You are a child of King Jesus, so now live for him. Be holy as God is holy. And so here's the question. Having thought rightly about what the world offers, and having thought rightly about yourself as a redeemed child of of Jesus, here's the question. How holy are you? Having been sprinkled clean by Jesus' blood, how holy is the life that you are living? Are you living your best life now? And if you ever clip that, don't take the context away, okay? How holy is your life? If it was illegal to be a Christian today and you were arrested for being a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would the holy way that you conduct your business indict you for the way you love the Lord? Would the holy way you treat your wife and children behind closed doors convince others of the sincerity of your faith? Would the holy and honest way you conduct yourself when no one else sees it 
put a nail in your coffin? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because God commands, be holy as I am holy. So are you? Now here's the thing. None of us are going to put up our hands and say, oh yes, I'm the most holy of us all. And if that's you, put your hand down, calm down, because that's not true. You're not. You know, whenever we ask a question from a pulpit like, how holy is your life? The congregation feels this wave of guilt, right? Because the reality is that none of us can measure up to that. None of us can stand here and say, yes, look at me, I have the holiest of the lives, you know, just follow me. The whole point of the gospel is that that's not true. But that Jesus knew that, he knows that. And he loved you anyway. He has taken upon himself your shame. He knew the guilt that lives in your heart and decided to come anyway. He knows you at your worst and decided, you know what? I'm coming to redeem that child of mine anyway. Yes, they're addicted to sin. Yes, they don't have their anger under control. Yes, they're greedy. Yes, they're jealous. Yes, they're pretty hopeless, actually. But I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to die for them anyway because that child is mine and I will wash them clean. And if you are a believer, Jesus sees you at your worst and decided to come for you anyway because he loves you, no matter how unholy your life actually is. And so we can put that guilt aside because he already knew what you would be struggling with even today. And he came for you anyway because he really, actually and truly loves you. And the more you realize that, the more you grapple with that kind of love for you, love for you at your worst, And yet, while you were at your worst, he still died for you. The more that brings you to your knees in gratitude, the more rightly you're going to think about what the world offers you in comparison, the more rightly you're going to think about who you are as one of his children, and the more rightly you're going to live in response. So be holy as Jesus is holy. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you once again for the challenge we have this morning to think clearly about what it means to, uh, to live rightly in this world, to really see the things of this world for what they are and to uh, understand them that way and to be able to reject them as a result of that, to be able to think rightly about who we are and, Lord, then to live rightly in response. We thank you that you shed your precious blood for us on the cross. And so now as we pray the words of this song we're going to sing in a moment, we pray that you will take these words and bless it to our hearts. And so Lord, please take our lives and let them be 
consecrated to thee. Take our moments and our days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take our hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. Take our feet and let them be swift and beautiful for you. Take our voices and let us always sing for you only, our King. Take our lips and let them be filled with messages from you. Take our silver and our gold, nothing we want to withhold from you. And take our intellect and use every power we have as you will choose. Help us, O Lord, to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.